We're in the middle of a sermon series called Upside Down Living, where we are looking at the Beatitudes, which is the first portion of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And so what I wanted to do this morning was, instead of just read the one scripture, the one verse that we're going to be looking at today, because we are looking at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, I wanted to read from the beginning of Matthew 5, we'll read straight through through verse 12, and let's just review all the Beatitudes. That'll be like a nice overview of the entire sermon series, both what we've covered and what we've yet to cover. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, if you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word? Follow along silently as I read aloud Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So like I said, we're in the middle of a sermon series that takes us through the Beatitudes. We're looking at a different Beatitude each week. And today, we've landed in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as I was reading through the Beatitudes this past week, uh, in preparation for this message in particular, uh, I found this one to be a rather odd one. And the reason is because at first glance, it seems like Jesus really isn't promising much, if you think about it. I mean, think about it for a minute, or better yet, look in your Bibles at the Beatitudes. Look in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse, uh, where do they start? Actually, in verse 3. And let's look at the ones we've covered. The poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven, right? Uh, Those who mourn get comforted. The meek, they inherit the earth. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, they promise to be satisfied. Skip to verse 8. The pure in heart get to see God. The peacemakers are called sons of God. The persecuted get the kingdom of heaven, uh, and when they're reviled and persecuted and other all kinds of things against you falsely on my account, we're told again, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And then we look at our text today, verse 7, and it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I feel like they already have that, right? Because they're merciful. They're full of mercy. It sounds like, blessed are the tall, for they shall receive height. It's like, yeah, okay, that seems a, a little lame. You know, blessed are, the, blessed are the wise, for they shall have wisdom. Like, duh, this is kind of, we would assume that if you are this thing, you have this thing. And there's something unique about this beatitude. But before we get into that, let's talk about what I just did in reading through the beatitudes the way I did. Because I don't think I read through them rightly. You see, the beatitudes aren't if-then statements. Like, 
algebraic equations. How many remember logic proofs from algebra? Do you remember doing logic proofs? If P, then Q. Remember Boolean proofs, Boolean operators? I loved logic in algebra. I loved it. I actually found it fun. Some of you, I wish you could see the faces. Yeah, there we go. I got an amen. I wish you could see the faces of some of you looking at me like, are you normal? Are you crazy? Loved it. Absolutely loved logic in algebra. But these aren't logical, these aren't biblical logic proofs. These aren't biblical if-then statements. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't blessings associated with each one of these, because surely there are. Peacemakers are blessed people. God is the God of all comfort, and he certainly comforts those who mourn, and so on and so on. There are certainly blessings associated with these things, uh, well, because the text seems to say that. But think about it for a minute. Just, Just for a minute. Find me a text where Jesus tells you that you should mourn all the time. Where in the world does Christ or anyone tell you that you should try to be persecuted? See, these are like, okay, now listen, if you're persecuted, you're going to get the kingdom of heaven, okay? Or you get, your reward's going to be in heaven, okay? Now you go and you be a good little girl. Go on now. Hey, if you're these things, you're going to get a blessing. And if you're really, really good, we'll give you a cookie. That's not what we're looking at. These are not if-then statements. If you do a good job mourning, then you get God's comfort. If not, no soup for you. Like, that, that's not how God works. If you're a peacemaker, you can be a child of God. If not, no dice. These aren't if-then statements. God doesn't work that way. He's not transactional when it comes to you and me. If you give, then I'll give back. Yeah, I'm God. Okay, I, I can give you a lot of blessings. And as long as you give, I'll give back. If you're this, I'll do this. But if you're not... Too bad, so sad. See, that's why it's upside down living. He's not a God of transaction between you and I. He's a God of action. And he takes that action first. Could you imagine if God said, I won't do anything for you unless you do something for me? Could you imagine if God said, I'll be as faithful to you next week as you were to me this past week? So I've been watching. I'll, I'll meet your, you lead. Could you imagine if God said, yeah, you want a relationship? You want to be close to me? Fine. I'm here. I'm God. I don't change. I haven't moved. You want a relationship? That's fine. You move first. I'm right here. I'm God. I've not moved. I've always been here. It's your serve. But thanks be to God that he moves towards us, right? We love him, 1 John 4 and verse 19. We love because he what? He first loved us. He first loved us. We read through something like Romans 8 verses 28 and following, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called to, you know what? Turn to it. Keep your finger in Matthew 5. Turn to Romans 8. I want you to see this, because Romans 8, 28 is something we're pretty familiar with, and Romans, the next verses we tend to forget. Romans 8 verses 28 and following. Keeping your finger in Matthew 5, so we're going to go back there. Look at Romans 8, verses 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You may not have picked up, I'm emphasizing a certain word. 
as I read through this, that word being? Yeah, a lot of he, not a lot of me. A lot of he, not a lot of me. He does all of these things. Aren't you glad that he does those things? That he justifies? Not like, well, I justify as long as you meet me halfway. I mean, I've got a lot to offer, but you got to meet me in the middle, right? Fair is fair. Not if-then statements. These are things that God does for his glory and for our good. A lot of he, not a lot of me. And so it is with the Beatitudes. There are blessings associated with all of these things, no doubt. But they're not if-then statements because that wouldn't be upside-down living. That would be right-side-up living. Every day of my life I deal with if-then statements, right? If I've paid my credit card bill, I will have credit. If I have the right amount of money, I can buy that certain item. If I do this, then I do that. If the light is green, then I may go. But if it's red, I can turn it right on red as long as I've come to it. Like if, then, if, then, if, then. Nothing upside down about that at all. That's just living. We just call this series living. It's upside down because they're actually not if-then statements. There's nothing radical about if-then. That makes sense. What's radical about this is Jesus describing the kinds of people to whom Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Jesus is describing the kind of people to whom he is bringing the kingdom of God. These are the kinds of people whom have received the kingdom of God. That's what's so radical. That's what's so upside down. Because look at the audience. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. The first words of Matthew chapter 5 says what? Seeing the what? The crowds, right? So we say, well, who are the crowds? Well, just look up a couple of verses. Look up to the end of chapter 4. Uh, look at verse 23. That he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Here are our crowds. So his fame spread, among th- spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So these are the crowds. Now look at the end of the sermon. Spoiler alert. Go to chapter 7. Just two chapters later, the very end of the sermon, it ends in chapter 7, and take a look at verses 28 and following. So Jesus finishes preaching in Matthew 7 and verse 27. Verse 28 says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So there are other times when Christ teaches throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew makes a distinction between those who hear and those who are given understanding. We see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. That just doesn't happen here. Matthew doesn't do that here. It seems here that all are hearing Jesus' teaching and all are welcome to respond. All hear what he has to say and all are welcome to respond. And that's what's so radical, so upside down about this. But it's just like Jesus to do that, right? Jesus' birth was first announced to who? Shepherds. When Jesus rose from the grave, he first appeared, not to the scribes and Pharisees, not to Roman officials, not to governing leaders, not even to the twelve. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, a woman, and a woman from whom seven demons had gone out. Jesus delivers the good news to people who seem to be the most least likely to be worthy of it. 
And that's what's so upside down. The most upside down part of the Sermon on the Mount is to whom Jesus would choose to tell of the coming of the kingdom. The diseased, the afflicted, Syrians, the pained, the demon-possessed, the seizing, the paralyzed, and the Gentiles. Upside down living happens because Jesus is turning their world upside down. The sick are healed. There are people who can't stop moving because they're seizing, and Jesus stops them. Then there are people who can't move because they're paralyzed, and Jesus gives them life and gives them the ability to move. They have life, but the ability to move about. The demon-possessed are freed from bondage, and all because of King Jesus. And so Jesus is here announcing his kingdom to the most unlikely of recipients and says, in essence, this is what we do. This is what we do. Not if you do this, I'll let you in. Show me your pure heart. Show me your pure heart. Okay, good. You're in. Show me your mourning. Are you mourning? You're not mourning? All right, you're out. Persecuted? Good. Show me the scars. Let me see. Show me the scars. Good. Oh, wow. Ooh, wow. You're, you're like really in. Like, that's not, that's not what he's doing here. These, this is what kingdom living looks like. These are what kingdom people are like. For such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God has come to these people. Today, we look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, I want to start out by saying this. First of all, point number one in your outline, kingdom people are not impressed with their righteousness or accomplishments. And you say, well, what does that have to do really with mercy? Well, it has to do really with everything that we've spoken about in Matthew chapter 5 throughout this sermon series to begin with, right? The poor in spirit, those who are mourning, the meek, people who are hungering, thirsting for righteousness because they have it not in and of themselves, And I'm looking at mercy from the opposite perspective. For example, it's been my experience that oftentimes the most unmerciful people I've ever met, or when I myself am being unmerciful, usually have some sort of an impressive resume attached with themselves. Does that make sense? So people tend to be unmerciful because they've accomplished a lot. Maybe in some way they're really high achievers. They're consistent or well-made or self-made. These are the people who followed Dave Ramsey principles before Dave Ramsey made them a thing. They were eating well before it was hip to do so. Whatever, you fill in the blank. But these are people who are like, well, I've done this and I've done that. And they can look back on their life, look back on choices they've made, on actions they've taken, seeing the fruit and the blessing come as a result, and say, I'm I'm not a big deal, but I'm kind of a big deal. And therefore, these people are not as merciful towards others because they, in their own pride, think that they have actually accomplished what they have gotten. It's not been a result of the mercy or the grace of God. It's because they've made wise choices. They've just followed the rules. They've made wise decisions. Or I just read my Bible and do what it says. Or I've said no to parties and yes to studying. So of course I graduated on time or early and with honors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just did this and I did that and I just did this and I just that. And they read through their resume. Because these people have accomplished a lot, typically they have very little mercy to offer others because they think they've gotten where they are because of themselves. Now, get, don't get me wrong. Those things are great. I hope that we handle our finances in a way that is glorifying to God. I hope we make wise decisions and see the blessings of making wise decisions. These things are great. It's just that Jesus doesn't say that's the type of person, or better yet, the type of heart within a person for whom the kingdom is for. Earlier in the Beatitudes, we read that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, not the 
rich. That comfort is coming to those who are mourning as opposed to those who are quite already comfortable in life and in every situation. That the earth will be given not to the biggest go-getters, but to those who are the least likely to get it. Who? Who will inherit the earth? The meek. And in today's text, we're told that the merciful, not the righteous, not the scorekeepers, not the winners, the merciful are blessed. You'll see in your outline what we read elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and verse 17. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are what? Sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The kingdom is not for those who read their own resume and are really excited about what they see. The kingdom is not for people who look back on their track record, who go to the tape, who replay their life over and over again and say, I didn't need mercy to get what I've gotten. I kind of had it coming. I didn't need the mercy of God to get to where I am in life. I was, you fill in the blank, I made this choice. I was raised in the, I, you, I'm a blank. You say you're less, I'm a LaRufa. I'm a Smith. I'm a Jenkins. I'm a whatever. Of course I had this coming. I'm a I'm successful. I work hard. I study. I get up early. I go to bed late. I burn it at both ends. You, whatever it is, and you read your... And it could, life choices that you've made. Well, duh. Yeah, we do that. Of course. We, we, give, we give out tracts. Uh, we homeschool. We share our lives with the poor. We do... Yeah. Yeah. It's this attitude. It's this eyebrow here. This tone here. It's communicating this. Do you see what I'm saying? People like that are not kingdom people, or at least not whom the kingdom was intended for. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The kingdom is for those who have a perpetual sense of need that can only be met by King Jesus. And I wonder if you at all were described in any of the things that I just said or the faces I just made. You know, reading your resume, regardless of how you feel about it, you might read your resume and feel really happy with what you see. You also might read your resume and feel really, really, really depressed with what you see. Both of those people, person who's really, really self-righteous or arrogant and excited about what they see and the person who's really, really depressed about what they see, they have this in common. They're looking at what? Themselves. Resume reading leads to a lot of self-focus. A lot of self-focus. And not a lot of looking out and not a lot of looking for opportunities to show mercy. And I wonder if that's been true for you. Do you find yourself reading your resume either in a way to justify yourself or to condemn yourself? Do you find yourself looking at your life, looking at yourself in the mirror, thinking back on choices you've made, and they don't drive you to be merciful because you think that everything that's happened has happened as a result of what you have done? And they don't drive you to Jesus saying, I need mercy, and they certainly don't drive you to other people with opportunities to give mercy because you think they're just in there where they are because they made stupid decisions. Well, yeah, you know what that is? Stupidity. It's dumb. It's unwise. Yeah, they're that way, and I can tell you why they're that way. 
This didn't happen overnight. All of which might be true. All of which probably is true. The Bible says, blessed are the what? Merciful. Kingdom people are not impressed with their righteousness or accomplishments. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Next point, point number two. Kingdom people have received mercy and are willing to give it. If you remember one line from this sermon, maybe it will be this. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Those who have experienced forgiveness in Christ, they're forgiven people. And therefore, they can't help but to forgive other people when they have the opportunity to be forgiving. But we don't like to do that. It's not our MO. It's not how we roll naturally. And I was just thinking, I was thinking, why don't I like to offer mercy? Uh, Why are we reluctant, perhaps, to show mercy? So I came up with five reasons, and I put them in your outline, five reasons we tend to be reluctant to show mercy. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 5 and go back to the Old Testament to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. If you get there before me, just bring it up to me. No, I'm kidding. Okay, I'm there. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. A fairly popular verse. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love kindness, or some of your versions might say love steadfast love, or love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Five reasons we tend to be reluctant to show mercy. We love meeting out justice instead of showing mercy. We love meeting out justice instead of showing mercy. I think we read Micah 6 and verse 8 where we're told to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God, but we do justly and love justice and walk humbly with our God. So we do what is right, and therefore we love what is right. And when others don't do what is right, we can't have mercy on them because we love justice, right? But here in the text, we're told not to love justice. We're told to love what? Kindness or mercy. Do what is right. Seek to work for that which is right. Do justice, but love mercy, and therefore walk Humbly. If you do what is right and then love what is right, you're probably not going to do the next thing, which is to walk humbly. Because you're going to judge everybody else who's not doing what is right. And when they don't do what is right, then you're not going to show them mercy because they're just supposed to do what is right. If everybody would just follow the rules, it wouldn't be a problem. If you single before you change if you signal before you change lanes, we wouldn't have to have that problem. That one, can I just stop there for a minute? Because that's a really good one, actually. <laughs> if we could just pause for a moment. The the turn signal is not an accessory. It's not an add-on. All the cars come with them. Use it. Do justly, back to the text, do justly, love, mercy, walk humbly. But I think we love meeting out justice. We love it. Love it. 
When you hear about the ruler of a country or the head of a regime who's been killed or been executed, we get really excited. But that's death. Like, death is death. Remember when Saddam Hussein was hung? Do you guys remember that, that hitting the news? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? I'm not saying he shouldn't have been hung or shouldn't have been hung. I'm saying, why do we love? Yeah. Ugh. What did that do? Because now there's no problems in that part of the world, right? Woo! Yeah, we love that. Why? Justice. Ugh. We love meeting out justice. We love when people get what they have coming to them, even though you don't get what you have coming to you. Stop going, look at me, going political. It's not about that. I'm talking about your heart, how you feel when these things are done or not done. How do you feel when those things happen? Because you've experienced mercy, but I'm asking, do you love justice? Show of hands, how many have has ever, you're like me, any one of your kids has ever wandered off in a public place, whether for a minute or for a second? Has that ever happened to you? Okay, hold on. Keep your hands up. That's right. Okay. Now, keep your hand up if the child was uh, found by you or returned to you by someone else. Okay, keep your hand up if social services came to your door and said you're a bad parent because you've neglected your child. But look at me. Raise your hand again if you're one of those people, please, just for one moment. You're, you neglected your child in that moment. You know that, right? Whose fault is it that they wandered off? They should have been with you at all times. Could we just call a spade a spade? Sure, blame the kid, right? I feel like you're the adult. Bad parent. Did you get what you deserved? Was your child abducted? Mercy. Raise your hand if you've ever been pulled over before and the guy or the girl lets you go. The cop lets you go. Raise your hand. Did you get what you deserved? Look, some of you had happened on the way here. Did you get what you deserved? How much do you love it? Love it when someone's driving like a maniac, cuts you off, weaves, and then like two miles later, you see them pulled over. <laughs> we laugh. <laughs> we do. And it's good to laugh as long as we stop. And realize that that does show there's so, yeah. We love justice. We love meeting out justice. We love it when people get what they deserve. Five reasons we tend to be reluctant to show mercy. We just don't love it. We love justice. We love it. I think we also love keeping score. 
Well, this person did this, so they did that, and they did this to me, so then I did that to them. Matthew 5, verses 38 and following. This is also in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, just flip over. It should be like a page or two. Matthew 5, verses 38 and following. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, slap him back. No, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. But no, we love keeping score. We love the eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. This happened to me, so this happened to you. And that's not, that's again, transactional justice. We don't love mercy. This says, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, you know what? Give him the other cheek. And say, well, he doesn't. That's probably like a, that's probably like a, a, like a messianic metaphor, right? Because surely he wants me to like backhand him for Jesus. In the gospel-centered way. That's just an illustration. I'm sure if you look at the Greek, it doesn't mean that. It probably means the exact opposite of what it says in my English Bible. We love keeping score. Love keeping score. And that works against us loving mercy. Blessed are the, not the scorekeepers, blessed are the merciful. We love to look good. We hate to look foolish. Hate looking foolish. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 10, Paul says, we are what? Fools for Christ's sake. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. It's very, very, very rare that someone can offer mercy to someone else. You feel however that mercy looks. Someone is merciful to someone else and walks away beating their chest and goes, I'm kind of a... Yeah, I'm pretty merciful. People are like, oh, wow, you're so merciful. That's so great. That's not what our world honors. Our world honors you getting yours. This happened to you, well, then you take your own vengeance. But when you don't look good when you show mercy, you look like a fool. You just look like a fool. Like You look like you're getting walked all over. You look like a doormat. We don't like looking like doormats. We don't like to look foolish. We like to look good. So it's hard for us to show mercy because it never looks good to show mercy in this world. It doesn't look good. It looks, you look idiotic. Really? Really? You're going to let her? You're not going to? I mean, why don't you just, do you have a lawyer? Do you have a, like, do you need money? What? Really? We don't like the way we look when we show Mercy. Here's something else that I thought of. We love to deal with matters on our own. That's kind of closely related to the last one. We don't trust God's justice to be the ultimate perfect dispenser of justice for all. We like to get ours, right? We like to make sure that this person suffers for what they did, that this person pays the price, that we get to even the scales. We like the eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth. We like to keep score, so we like to do that. And we know that the word of God says, God says, vengeance is whose? Ours or his? Loudly? His. Not as loudly as I was hoping, but next time you'll get it. Vengeance is his, right? Not mine. Yeah, that's kind of cool in like this ultimate eternal sense, but I can still get a little bit of vengeance, right? I mean, surely he understands. I made in his image, right? I should be acting like him, right? Yeah, except for the things that he says, that's just for me. 
And he says, vengeance is mine. But we don't trust the justice system of God. We don't. So we're going to get ours on our own. We're going to make sure that the other person pays. We're not going to show mercy because if you don't show, how will they learn, right? How will they learn? If I don't do that, how will they learn? We say that a lot. How will they ever learn their lesson? How will they ever get better? Someone's got to stop it. Maybe God can. Well, but maybe like through me, right? Because I can backhand pretty well. I start from down here. I can. We don't trust the Lord. That leads me to the next reason, why five reasons we tend to be reluctant to show mercy. We love meeting out justice. We love keeping score. We love to look good. We love to deal with matters of our own, and we love ROI. ROI stands for return on investment. We don't really know if showing mercy will ever pay off. Is this going to be worth it? So uh, the verse in parentheses there, John 8, verses 10 and following is, Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. And he says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Right? And she said, no one, no one, Lord. My accusers are gone. And she says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Did she ever sin again? I don't know. Did Jesus show her mercy and that mercy paid off because she never, ever, 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 ever sinned again? I don't know. She might have went to dude's house and cooked him breakfast. I don't know. He, he just showed her mercy, but it was with no strings attached. Did he get a return on his investment? I don't know. But we're not that way. We want to make sure that if we do this, this is probably going to happen. Right? If I show you mercy, if I let, so I'll show you mercy, but you're like never going to do this again. Right? So this way I can, like I'm willing to show you mercy. Just promise me you'll never do this again. I can't tell you how many times I, and I think I've said this before in sermons, how many times I have looked at Sarah and said, how can we make sure this never happens again? Now, I mean well in that. Like, I'm thinking, okay, well, let's not repeat our errors, right? How can we make sure this never happens again? And finally, she said, that's the most, that's maybe one of the heaviest things you ever say to me. Really? Never happens again? I can't, never happens again. Like, is that the standard, Peter, based upon which you're going to, forgive and move on, making sure this never happens again. I can never mess up again. I can never be a sinner again. Well, I, I just want to what? I want to return on my investment. We look at mercy as an investment, but I just want to get something out of it, and then all of a sudden it's transactional. It's no longer mercy. This is why we tend to be reluctant to show Mercy. I wonder if any of these reasons we're reluctant to show mercy resonate with you. Which shows your heart? I'm not saying the woman who's driving like a maniac who gets pulled over up ahead didn't deserve to get pulled over. She did. I want to know why do you love that? She broke the law. That's fine. Why do you love that? How is your day better as a result of it? Oh, it just feels so good. Why? Because we don't love mercy. We don't do justly and love mercy and walk humbly. We do what it's right and beat our chest. 
Which of these reasons resonate with you just to show you your heart, whether or not you love mercy or love justice? Because forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. There's a constant, consistent expectation that kingdom people, the saved, the justified, the recipients of mercy would be the givers of mercy. Take a little, le- look, le- take, a, yeah, take an English class. Take a, take a look a little later. Turn to Matthew 6 is what I'm saying. Look like a chapter later, okay? It's still the Sermon on the Mount. Look ahead at Matthew 6, verses 12 and following, commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Take a look at Matthew 6, verses 12 and following. Matthew 6, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Look at verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. How many of you feel super comfortable with those statements? But there is a direct correlation between what forgiven people do, whether or not they forgive. And forgiven people forgive people. People who have received mercy are in and of themselves merciful as well. You see that constantly throughout Scripture. There's this constant, consistent expectation that if you've received mercy, you're going to give mercy when you have opportunities to do so. We don't have to go there, but there's the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. Where a master wants to make things right with his servants. The servant owes him money. The servant says, I can't pay you right now. Can I have some time? The master says, yeah, absolutely. The servant goes out. So he has shown mercy. The servant goes out, finds another servant who actually owes him money. He says, you owe me this money. He goes, I can't really pay you the money right now. And he actually chokes him, right? Throws him in jail because he can't pay him. Matthew 18 and verse 33 says, Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Why? Because forgiven people forgive people. Uh, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgive you. There's this constant reminder, this constant look back. Forgive one another because you've been forgiven. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3 verse 13, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must Forgive, like you must forgive because you've been forgiven so much. How could we not forgive? Does Christ's forgiveness of you motivate you to show mercy to others? Why not? Why, if we have been forgiven much, do we not want to forgive much? Well, they can come to Christ, and if they don't come to Christ, then that's their problem. They're going to get what they have coming to them. And then, uh, uh, uh. Blessed are the merciful, 
Forgiven people forgive people. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Point number three, kingdom people are aware of those who are hurting and do acts of mercy and compassion in response. This is another example of what merciful people do because there's a close relationship between mercy and compassion. Compassion sees the need, sees someone who is in need and goes, oh my gosh, I'm moved within my gut, literally within my bowels. I'm moved within, because that's where you feel it, right? When you see someone who's, you say my heart is breaking, but really your stomach is turning, right? Because when you're nervous, you feel it in your gut, right? You feel it in your stomach. You say, you're, what, your heart's tied in knots? No, my stomach's tied in knots. So all of a sudden, you see someone that you just can't, oh my goodness, this person's so despondent, this person's so in need, this family is going through this crisis. You fill in the blank, oh, and you, oh, you feel it right here. It's what Jesus felt as he looked out and lamented over Jerusalem, right? He felt compassion. He was moved with compassion towards them. Even though he knew they all deserve the, to, be, to have the penalty for their sins, but he was moved with compassion. Why? Because he was sad for them. People who are merciful are like Jesus in that way, where we are aware of those who are hurting. We do acts of mercy and compassion in response. And in your outline, I put Luke 10, verses 36 and 37, which is the latter parts, the last verses of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus asks his accuser, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him what? Mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. When kingdom people show mercy to those who are hurting, what we end up doing is painting just a small, a small picture of what King Jesus did for us. Didn't wait for us to get our lives together. Didn't wait for us to get our act together. Didn't wait for us to clean up. Didn't wait for us to really make sure that, okay, we'll meet us, but we've got to at least come this far. It shows in a small way, a really, really small way. Okay, so it's nowhere near the same thing as you dying on the cross for this person's sins. But when you show mercy to someone, when you show kindness and act of compassion in a small way, it shows a picture of what Jesus did for us. And so kingdom people are aware of those who are hurting and do acts of mercy and compassion in response. I'm going to read that again because I'm going to take a side note now. And if you don't see how it connects to this point, it's going to seem random. Kingdom people, look at it, uh, number three. Kingdom people are aware of those who are hurting and do acts of mercy and compassion in response. Now, what I would like to do, because I think it's helpful for us as we interact in the world in which we live, is I want to reference two opportunities that I think we have the have good opportunities today to apply mercy in our culture. What I want to do is reference two movements that I think are worth mentioning as they relate to us being merciful people as a church family, as we engage with and interact with this world, which is not our home, but we're here for a while. So I want to talk about these things in an effort to help you understand opportunities for us to show mercy and for you to be able to interpret these things hopefully a little better through what I believe to be a biblical worldview and a biblical grid. Two movements that I think are worth mentioning during our time today in an effort to better live out the gospel truths that we're looking at today. And those two movements are the LGBT plus movement 
and the other is the Me Too movement. Yes, in the next 14 minutes, I'm going to talk about both of these things. I'm glad you're seated. I want to talk about how I believe kingdom people interact with both of these movements. So I was on a plane earlier this week, and I'm sitting next to uh, what I would like to do on this plane ride is just do a little bit of sermon prep. I have my books, I have a pen, I have my laptop, just a little bit of sermon prep. But I'm sitting next to a lady, and she pulls out this book, and I see at the top of the book uh, where she's reading. You know how something will say the author at the top of one page and the title at the top of another? So I see Jackie Hill Perry. How many of you are familiar with Jackie Hill Perry? Okay, so she wrote this book, Gay Girl, Good God. And uh, she uh, was reading it, and I couldn't help. I said, oh, wow, you're, is that Gay Girl, Good God? I just saw Jackie Hill Perry. I, I don't even know if she's written any other books, so maybe it was a silly question. And she went, yeah. I said, my wife's reading that book. She is reading that book. She won't let me touch it because she says it's really good and she wants to finish it. So, um, but, by the way, if you get the audible version, Jackie Hill Perry reads it. And I would listen to Jackie Hill Perry read the phone book personally. So that might be worth it. <laughs> Moving on. So she re she's reading this book and I talk to her about it. And I'm like, oh, wow, you're is that Gay Girl of God? Yeah, it is. Oh, my wife's reading it. She loves it. And she starts to talk to me about where she lives and what life is like, and they have several kids, and um, she's coming back from a trip that she had just taken with one of her daughters, and uh, she said that they have uh, a couple of grown kids, and um, she asked me where I live. She asked me where I go to church. I always try to push. I dodge the what do you do for a living. Like, I don't drop that in conversations because I, I see people do this. Does that make sense? So I tell them where I go to church. I don't tell them that I, like, lead it. They say, where do you go to church? I say, oh, I go to church in uh, Fort Thomas. Oh, I have family in Fort Thomas. Oh, that's cool. She said, what's the name of your church? I said, oh, it's Grace Fellowship Church. And um, she said, oh, we come to Fort Thomas oftentimes to visit. I said, oh, cool. <laughs> I said, we'd love to, they don't live in this area, live up about 45 minutes north of here. I said, oh, we'd love to have you. Feel, feel free to visit any time. It would be fun. Sweetest, sweetest lady. She's uh, two homosexual children. One of which is living a fairly normal life, has a career, is fairly successful. And the other one that's homeless, she says, she's not in our house, she's on the street. She's big time into drugs. So we started talking about church, and I said, uh, yeah, you should come and visit one time. And she looked at me and she said, yeah? She said, could a lesbian couple come into your church and go to your worship service? And I looked at her and I said, absolutely. So I just want to check with you if I answered her rightly. Because there's more of you than there are of me. And it's, in a sense, my job, right? I'm kind of running this thing. So it's kind of like my job. I got to welcome everyone. Well, yeah, you're a pastor. Of course you're going to say that. And of course you're going to welcome the person, right? It would behoove you to do so. So I thought it best to run that by you as a church family because I made a promise on a plane that I'm 
quite frankly, looking to you to keep. See, I preach and I lead and I pray, but we are the church. And I'm one guy who can make a statement on a plane, but I'm looking to us and especially to you to deliver it. Why? Because we're kingdom people. And this is what we do. And kingdom people are aware of those who are hurting and do acts of mercy and compassion in response. So we have mercy on those who are living in ways we know are not best for them. As a kingdom person, I'm, I, we can look to, I think you can look to just about anyone who comes into our church family and say four words. We're glad you're what? Here. But only if we're merciful people. Because if we're not merciful people and we swing to loving justice instead of loving mercy, we're not going to love those. We're not going to love anyone who's not living according to the word of God in every way, shape, or form. And we send people out and tell them to clean up their lives and say, you can come back here when they clean up their lives. But kingdom people, blessed are the merciful, not the righteous, the perfect, the awesome. Blessed are the merciful. Kingdom people are aware of those who are hurting and do acts of mercy and compassion in response. So did I answer her rightly? I hope I did. I hope I did. And I hope that's always true of our church, always true of our church, that we would be able to look at anyone who walks in these doors, anyone who walks in these doors and say those four words, we're glad you're here because they're going to hear the word of God. They could be encouraged. They can be uplifted. They could be convicted. They could be saved. They could be sanctified and they could be glorified. We're glad you're here. We're always glad you're here. I said two movements, and the second one was the Me Too movement. I'd say, what are you doing? Maybe preaching my last sermon. <laughs> the, go out with a bang. So the Me Too movement is a movement against, raise your hand, you've heard of it, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, the Me Too movement, in case you didn't know, raise your hand. So the Me Too movement is a movement against uh, uh, sexual assault and harassment, especially in but not limited to the workplace. And it's a movement against sexual harassment and sexual assault, especially against but not necessarily limited to women. Uh, it's actually not new. started in 2006. It's just got a ton of groundswell recently because of a tweet actually that went out about a year ago by Alyssa Milano, who's the boss, anyone? So uh, about a year ago, and that's what got it started and just in 2006, not as many people were, in my opinion, interacting with social media. And there's been a huge groundswell of the movement now. Um, and like I said, most likely due to the increased uh, access everyone has to social media. In a recent Barna study, the studies show that 2 to 6%, 2 to 6% of the Me Too accusations, when looked into, have been proven to be false. Okay, so to, now that's not everyone who tweets hashtag me too is telling the truth. No, no, but two, like two to six percent of those who actually look into them, investigate them, bring up evidence, try to take them to conviction, uh, to trial, to look for conviction, two to six percent of them that go the distance have been proven to be false. So if you do the math, 
2 to 6% have proven to be false. That means 94 to 98% of the accusations, to some degree, hold water, which would make the uh, you know, which would, which would make us really kind of like say, wow, this is, this is kind of a big deal. This past week, I was speaking with someone about this sermon. I mentioned the text and the topic. They asked if I was going to make mention of how it relates to the Me Too movement. I was completely puzzled. I said, no. I just wasn't, just didn't, literally just didn't cross my mind. And they said, well, I, I was wondering, and they asked me what I thought about this because they said uh, it's come to light lately that members of the Mormon religion are being encouraged to not come forward because blessed are the merciful. So it's being spun as if you're merciful, you won't come forward. God calls us to be merciful. So maybe you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't come forward. Maybe in an act of mercy, you would say, okay, so I'm not going to come forward I can't do this, what other people are doing, because uh, I should play the mercy card. So instead of coming forward, I should be merciful instead. And I thought, well, that's true for the Mormons. That could be true. Some, I could see somebody spinning it in our circles in that way too, right? Like, oh, okay, so I should be merciful, so I shouldn't do that. So what I just want to do is help you to understand why I think that argument, in my opinion, does not hold water. So I said it before, and I'll say it again without apology. Forgiven people what? Forgive people. When God forgives us, he doesn't forget our sin. He's omniscient. He can't forget. Don't say God forgets sin. He's never forgotten anything. He chooses not to remember. Very different thing. That's a very active thing. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. God says, your sin I will remember no more. It's a choice that he makes. For you to forgive someone means you will choose to not associate them with the sin they've committed against you. You won't hold it against them. You don't seek to personally punish them. You're removing the obligation, if you will, that they put upon themselves by sinning against you. So for you to forgive them, you will not personally punish them, but instead seek to look at them without that obligation in mind. However... Please don't forget the context of this point, point number three in your outline. Kingdom people are aware of those who are hurting and do acts of mercy and compassion in response. And so here's the deal. One person coming forward saying she or he had been sexually assaulted by a certain person is in and of itself an act of mercy and compassion. And here are two reasons why. First, it's very rare, extremely rare, that people who act in this manner get the help they need on their own. It's very rare that people who act in this manner, people who are sexual assaulters, people who harass people sexually, it's very rare, very rare, that they all of a sudden wake up and say, you know, I think I want to stop, and I want to get the help I need on my own. Very rare. Coming forward is really hard, but not coming forward in the name of mercy is actually not merciful if the person could get the help they need by someone coming forward. So it's not in coming forward and seeking to punish them and seeking to get, yeah, they'll finally get, they'll finally pay what they, that's the person who gets pulled over up ahead on the road, right? Finally gets what's coming to them. But you have to understand that they need help and they're probably not going to get the help in and of themselves. Very rare. It's an act of mercy in coming forward. Secondly, coming forward is an act of mercy towards another person 
another potential victim, since it's also rare, very, very rare, that someone who has assaulted you sexually does not strike again. Very, very rare. You may see yourself as the sole victim, but it's very, very rare that that's the case. Not an old man. Not fresh off the turnip truck. 17 years of vocational ministry, it's been my experience that sexual sin develops a unique wagon wheel rut in someone's heart, in someone's mind, in someone's life, such that life just tends to, can you steer out of it? Sure. But it just tends to default back into that same place again. That same place again. It's a very, very unique situation. Life just tends to fall back into that rut again and again and again, unless specific, focused, fairly concentrated, and most likely long-term help is sought and received. Therefore, I don't think it's inconsistent for one to claim they love Jesus, say they've forgiven the person, but still come forward and say, me too, I was assaulted by so-and-so. We're reminded in Romans 13 that the civil authorities that exist are in place because God has appointed them to be so. Romans 13 and verse 3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Verse 4 says, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So I believe it is a God-ordained function of the government to, generally speaking, generally speaking, provide protection for society at large. And so I don't think it to be neither inconsistent with the scriptures nor unmerciful for one to come forward in a situation like that. Do so, and do so with gentleness, with clarity, with respect, and with the glory of God and the protection of others and the love of the person in mind. And by that, that probably means that social media is like not the place to make the matter known. But your local authorities, be they civil, ecclesiastical, or both, so if that's you, if that's you, know that I and Pastor Aaron and our church and the elders stand ready to help you in what I believe to be an act of courage on your part and mercy toward others. You have been bought with a price, you are valued, and you are loved. Finally, point number four. Kingdom people are merciful because they receive God's mercies anew each and every day. Each and every day. Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they shall receive mercy. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to, a, to an end. They are new every morning. Each and every day, God gives us the mercy that we need to face that day with mercy. So it's not like, oh, I had mercy at one time, but I kind of ran out of it. God is up all night creating mercy for you to handle the day that God has ordained for you. Psalm 90 and verse 14, satisfy, in the, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of 
need. Kingdom people are merciful because they receive God's mercies anew each and every day. Aren't you glad that God prepares mercy for you today and you don't have to lean on what you rationed out from yesterday? Did I save enough yesterday? Did I totally seal the Tupperware container and burp it? Do I, is it going to go bad or do I get new mercy each and every day? God gives us new mercies each and every day to face the life that he has ordained for us to live. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Father in heaven, we come before you grateful for your mercy, asking you to make us a people of mercy, such that we would bring glory and honor to you, and that others might be edified by seeing just even in a small, small way what it is like to be the children of God, members of the family of God, members of the kingdom of God who live in an upside-down, radical way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.